Where have all the soldiers gone? The head of the US Army in Europe has concerns about British troop numbers. I'd be very worried if uh, British land forces were cut below what I thought was described as the floor. And HMS Queen Elizabeth set sail, but what does the future hold for her? The head of the army says the military needs to think about changing the way it attracts new recruits. General Sir Nick Carter told the Royal United Services Institute's Land Warfare Conference that the regular army was at its smallest since the days of Cromwell. Well, our reporter Rosie Layden was there and asked him if he was concerned about troop numbers. Well, I think the first point is that I'm talking about the regular component, uh, which is around 80,000 these days. But I think what we need to remember is that we have the potential of the 30,000 reservists that we now have on the book. And of course, we also have the regular reserve, which are all those who have a statutory requirement to be available to be mobilized, who have done regular service in the past. And when you aggregate all of this up, you get to a number in terms of the full potential of the armies being near 140 to 150,000. And I think that's quite a sensible way to look at the potential of what we can do. You mentioned that figure of 150,000. And, and as you say, the army is more than just the regulars. Um, that said, the regulars are currently under strength. Um, is that a question of recruitment or underfunding? Are, are you concerned about that element? I mean, it's a combination of lots of factors. I mean, I think that we have to make the connection to society. Uh, demographies change. We have to reach out to new communities to recruit from. We have to recognise that the Afghan campaign was a remarkable recruiting sergeant, and that's not there any longer. And, of course, the economy has been doing quite well. And all of those factors put together mean that it's been quite a difficult recruiting climate. I'm pleased to say that retention is pretty good. I think people remain committed to the profession and enjoy it. So it's a combination of factors, but I'm also absolutely certain that we, um, we can man an army at 80,000 in regular terms. The conference is always such a mix of international um, personnel and, and leading figures and of civilian and military. Um, can you tell me how you translate all the, the debate and um, presentation that we hear today into policy and, and strategy? Well, there's a good degree of technology that underpins what happens here. So all of the comments and questions and remarks that people make are filed digitally. And then there's a process afterwards of trying to capture all of that. And then what we then try and do is to recycle it in order to inform our force development and our doctrinal development and our thinking more broadly. And do you find it useful? Of course, that's why we do it every year. Um, I think it's great to get lots of foreigners together. And what is always, I find, rather reassuring is that we share many of the same problems and that actually it's in discussing those problems together that there's a sporting chance that we might solve them. That was General Sir Nick Carter talking to our reporter, Rosie Layden. Well, I'm joined, as usual, by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. And the head of the army has said this kind of thing before about army recruiting and army numbers, but are things moving in the right direction? They're moving but not necessarily in fully the right direction. Let's put it this way. He was talking about having perhaps a, a collection of 140,000 uh, troops, including uh, reserves to call upon. But the truth is, it's 
probably below 80,000 of trained people. And that is the difficulty of relying on the reserves, for example, to back up your figures, which was the original idea. Uh, that does not work if you're looking for people who are trained that you can take out, reinforce, yes. uh, forward plan all, all, all the time. He's, he's talking been... about regular reserves as well, though. How many people could we be talking about there? Because he's talking about possibly a call-up of around 140,000 people. 140,000 but not trained. And also regular people, if you talk to regular reserves, they say, we're out of training, out of training in, in something like a year. They can't just sort of slip back in. It's not a question of, uh, question of that. You know, Nick Carter got this job six years ago. And by all accounts in the army, he's done it brilliantly. What has failed to happen is that the MOD has failed to ask the simple question, why, why aren't people joining the army? It's not a question that it's difficult. Why aren't people joining together, joining? And until they get that right, and it also applies to the Navy, I'm afraid that this figure will still be too low to run the sort of army, to modernise the sort of army that Nick Carter's talking about. Yes, and he's talking about reaching out to new communities. Who exactly is he talking about and how do they go about that? If you go back to 2015, he defined... Uh, something which the army and uh, and the Ministry of Defence was un, uh, unhappy about talking about. And it's very, very simple. Um, the ethnic minorities in this country are going to be a gr much greater part of the army in future. And also the introduction of, of women in different grades in the army, right up to the top. They're talking about, he says one day somebody will be doing, who is a woman, will be doing his job as CGS. That's all very well. But the immediate problem is to get this modernisation programme, the direct Army Directive uh, 2017, further forward mm. at a faster pace. Well, General Carter wasn't the only one to have concerns about the size of the British Army. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges is commander of the US Army in Europe. It's not big enough to do everything that is needed uh, to do as part of the alliance or to, to do all the other things uh, that it's asked to do. Um, I mean, the UK has global responsibilities just like the United States. Um, you're one of only only three countries increased their uh, troop footprint uh, in Afghanistan when the United States did uh, back uh, in 2010. UK was one of the three. Um, so you have such an important role in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, in the Pacific, uh, and of course uh, in Europe. Uh, that all the people of the world, every single one of them, lives on the land. It's where all the people are. It's where all the critical infrastructure is. So you have to have land forces to protect infrastructure, to protect populations. So um, I think, uh, again, I'm the outsider here. Uh, I'd be very worried if uh, British land forces were cut below what I thought was described as the floor. Now, the Allies in Europe are doing more across a, a wider distance than they have done for many years. Um, <laughs> Does the command structure become more complex and does that create uncertainties that make your job more difficult as a commander? The, the command structure? So you've got um, at the Lisbon summit back in 2012, NATO decided it needed to shed a lot of the uh, command structure. It was unnecessary. It was left over perhaps. Uh, now, I think many of us are sort of wishing we had some of that command structure back in place. Uh, each of the, the various headquarters of NATO, LANCOM, uh, AIRCOM, MARCOM, they're all way too small uh, for the jobs that they're being asked to do. Um, multinational Corps Northeast in Chechen, Poland just went through a certification uh, that will enable them to carry out a very important task that they have to do. 
Um, you have to exercise uh, all the NATO command structures and the NATO force structure. Um, exercises are so important because that's what allows you to test principles. And uh, I think we've, we've still got uh, a lot of areas where we can improve on that. On that interoperability, mm. I mean, in the past, for example, there have been problems where, for example, a, a French Bowser couldn't replenish a Norwegian um, armoured personnel carrier, that kind of problem. Is that a thing of the past, or does that, do problems with interoperability still exist? So uh, you've got two aspects to interoperability. One is kind of standards and procedures. And you have, everybody has to know those things, and you've got to practice them. So exercises help us do that. Uh, we had a similar problem trying to refuel other people's vehicles. You know, the nozzle doesn't necessarily fit in everybody's vehicle. So there are ways to, to make adapters, but you discover that on exercise. That's relatively easy to fix. The other part of interoperability is much more difficult to fix, and it really has to do with the various types of mission command systems. Uh, I think three things are essential. You should, you should be able to talk secure on FM radio. Tactical radio have got to be secure. Right now, we cannot do that in many places. Uh, secondly, the, uh, with field artillery, fires, uh, you need to be able to do a digital fire mission so that radar picks up target or incoming, goes straight through the fire direction center, goes straight to the guns from different countries, all right? And um, it's gotta be digital. And then the third thing, the COP, the common operating picture, truly needs to be common. That put an American unit under a British unit, under a German, the icon of the lower unit should automatically populate the, uh, uh, the cop of the higher headquarters. I think those three things are essential for interoperability. you got to keep practicing that. So is there still a way to go with those? I think it'll be an endless task because each nation is going to protect their own industry, which I, which I completely get. So I don't care what's on the box. It could be Talis, Bowman, uh, Harris, you know, whoever makes it is not important to me. It's, if I put an American unit under a Polish unit under a British unit, are they, are they connected? Can they communicate? Can they share intelligence? So uh, this is an area I think that we're going to be working on for quite some time. In the meanwhile, we'll do it the way we did when I was a lieutenant 100 years ago. You know, you send a sergeant with a radio to the German headquarters so that you can communicate. That was Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, speaking to our reporter Charlotte Banks. Christopher Lee, he sounds quite bleak in the way he's talking there, the tone. Uh, I'm not sure it's bleak. I, I think what it is reasonable. I mean, he's thought it through. I mean, he was, as he would say, a lieutenant in NATO when he was a young soldier, and he's lived with all this. If you look at one particular thing, COP, which is a common operation procedure, um, tie that in with something that's happened over the past 10, 15 years, and that is the spread of NATO and the NATO operational area. Mm. Now, we were talking, weren't we, about uh, exercises in Romania, which is the furthest east NATO has got into the, the, the so-called front line. When you've got an area that's big as that, the task of actually controlling the battle, never mind theater warfare, but great operational uh, battle areas, is, is something which NATO has never had to face before. No, no, no army's ever had to face that, and that is the continuing learning curve because it's going to be changing every time there's, there's defence equipment review you'll say where do they get that from mm. you know how can we fit it into the system alright Christopher stay with us Sit Rep with Kate still to come fresh talks aimed at reunifying Cyprus and it's 20 years since the British left Hong Kong
The Royal Navy's largest ever warship set sail for the first time this week. HMS Queen Elizabeth has cost more than £3 billion to build. Rear Admiral Keith Blount is head of the Royal Navy carrier programme. Well, we set ourselves a challenge in the way that this ship has been built. Four different manufacturing companies in six different build yards building nine bits of ship to be brought here to be assembled in Rosyth in Scotland. That was a challenge. But thanks to the brilliance of the shipbuilding industry in the United Kingdom, everything fitted together, the most complicated jigsaw you can possibly imagine. It was a challenge, but it was a successfully met one. Well, the ship's captain, Commander Jerry Kidd, says the new Queen Elizabeth-class carriers are a formidable force. They are fantastic, magnificent ships, able to deploy a whole range of capabilities from the ship, from all three services, whether we are supporting troops ashore, Royal Marines and Amphibious Operations Area or protecting shipping at sea, this aircraft carrier can do it all. And he says it's important for Britain's reputation as a naval power. I think there are very few capabilities by any country that are as symbolic and as totemic as a carrier strike capability. Submarines you can't see, these are very visible symbols of national power and power projection. Well, let's talk to naval historian and analyst Eric Grove. Good to speak to you today, Eric. Were you cracking open your own bottle as you set sail this week? Well, I was very pleased, I must admit. We've been waiting for this for a very, very long time, and uh, it's good to see her at sea. Of course, she isn't operational yet. She won't She won't carry out her first air- aircraft trials until next year. She, she probably won't be... F- won't be fully operational until 2020 at the very earliest. Uh, she'll probably go to sea, actually, with a combined air group with one British squadron and two US Marine Corps squadrons, uh, which is an interesting uh, uh, an interesting development in its own way. But yes, I mean, she will be a tremendous asset, both in national terms and in what we can bring to the table in any coalition operation. Indeed, and the Russians are putting the dampness on it all, aren't they? The spokesman, uh, Igor Konoshenko, says HMS Queen Elizabeth is just a big maritime target. Uh, sour grapes? Uh, yes, very much so. And it's very hypocritical. I mean, the Russians would like to have a carrier force. They have something approaching it in the Admiral Kuznetsov, which smokes its way to the Mediterranean now and again mm. uh, and uh, and carries a, um, a small number of jets, a rather smaller number than our carrier will, will carry. And there is much talk and there is much talk of uh, aircraft carriers uh, of a larger size being procured by the Russians. So, uh, yes, they would like to have it, too. Most great powers, as, as, as I think Jerry said, would like to have an aircraft carrier. Uh, and many do. And it's been a problem that we haven't had one. Mm, Christopher Lee, so we're talking about hopefully operational by 2020, say five years after that, 25, 26. What, what do you think will be required of this new aircraft carrier? If, the, if what's going on in the Middle East at the moment, especially Syria, is, let's say, fixed in some form, then it's probably quite a different sort of uh, environment, a different maritime tap- tapestry. That the uh, that the Elizabeth will be operating in, it'll still need to be what it basically is. Forget the idea that it's a ship; that is a floating runway. And we learned, for example, 35 years ago in the Falklands, that you need to be able to put a runway anywhere. That's why, for example, half the squadrons would be uh, at the moment would be Royal Royal Air Force. But it will be far more in support of something else, and that is a big battle group. 
it needs its frigates, its destroyers, um, submarines to support it. It is far more, it's it's much bigger than the operations that they're carrying out at the moment. Now, if you're going to do that, where is that operation going to be? People look at the the Americans say, and we heard the general saying earlier, it's great that the British always come along to these things. Mm. If that's so, you start going along to the... Uh, you go along to the South China Sea and you're taking part in a, quite a different environment than you've ever done for 40 years. Yeah, when, when you hear about those kind of capabilities you're talking about, Christopher, Eric, I'm wondering, how do you think we've, we have coped and are coping without them at the moment? Well, 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 we didn't cope at all well without them. And of course, Libya came up shortly after the decision to get rid of Ark Royal was taken. And the fact we hadn't got Ark Royal to take part in the operations there was distinctly missed. Interesting that and the new captain cap- is Jerry Kidd, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Who was the captain made, of Ark Royal. That's right. And it made Cameron into a born-again carrier man, so much so that the first sea lord gave him a present of... of of uh, his model of the carrier, and he put it on the cabinet table and said, look, you know, what a wonderful asset. Previously, uh, uh, he and he and Mr. Osborne had thought that they were rather nasty Labour Party job creation schemes, and hence mm. they were going to cut back on the programme. But I think that demonstrated what you uh, uh, what you can't do if you don't have a carrier cap- a capability. And I think the lesson was learned. Were you going to get the manpower to operate one carrier, six surface ships, three subsurface uh, vessels and to keep that going with all the training that's needed um, and all the projection that's needed to bring in new people, let's say, on two-year basis. And what is the answer to that question? How Will we have the manpower? Is it there? Is it possible to get it? Certainly haven't got it at the moment, have we, Eric? But the well, yes. But the carrier is actually very lean manned. I mean, it's only containing 650, 700 people, which for a ship that size is very limited. Now, this creates challenges as far as mechanisation of things like ammunition handling are concerned. But it, we have, in a sense, taken into account the fact that we do have the personnel problems, and I would not, I would not diminish them. I mean, I've I've been involved in some work on on how we might get more. Uh, more people to come into the Navy, perhaps altering al- altering the leadership style somewhat to make it a more attractive thing for modern young people. Mm. Uh, so, so, so the Navy has recognised this, and it is a challenge. But um, it's a bit of a cop out to say this, but it is it is very unlikely that uh, that Queen Elizabeth would form part of a. Pu- a pu- a, a purely national group. One of the bit major rationale for the carrier began with we mo- we want to make a sufficient contribution to a combined air campaign, so the joint forces air component commander will have to take British mm. views into account. Okay, how about having a French-British carrier battle group then? Perhaps even with a, a, a French captain in Elizabeth. Well, it, well, it, 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 there are difficulties in that because we chose to go with short takeoff vertical landing, and of course the French carrier uh, is, a, is, a, is a more conventional cats and you know a more conventional cats and traps carrier. I mean, we were hoping to sell more or less our, our design with suitable additions like a wine cellar and, and a nuclear weapon storage site to the French, but Sarkozy cancelled Port Avion deux, and so. But I think that it is it is certainly within you know the bounds of possibility that you could have um, a joint, uh, although with Brexit etc. It might be a little more difficult a joint Anglo-French group. But certainly I think the use of allied carriers as part of combined groups is a very is a very very important one. And one must always remember this: the Americans, for the foreseeable future, despite the fact they have ten or eleven aircraft carriers, are only able to keep two and a half at sea at any one time. Mm. The half being a deployment for for six months. So having a carrier with a combined Anglo-American air group with a British captain and a, 
and under British command could have quite a lot of strategic leverage. Eric Rowe, stay with us. We'll just move on for the moment. Uh, The NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has confirmed this week the alliance will increase the number of troops in Afghanistan by several thousand. He's been speaking at a meeting of defence ministers in Brussels. Britain's offered around 100 troops. Uh, Christopher Lee, this is part of the mentoring and training, isn't it, in Afghanistan of of Afghan forces? Yeah, it's it's not about numbers. It's not about, oh, can we only only fetch up with 100 more? Um, It's what you do. We're not going into Helmand. um, But you have to forward think yet again. Doesn't sound very much 100 more, but on top of what you've got to do. You've got to start taking people sometimes out of General Carter's sort of plan Mm. for the future of the army. And I don't think that we should... We just say, oh, there's only a few going. How much of a difference can they make, given the situation, given the the, the areas that the Taliban are taking back in Afghanistan and have taken back? I think you, if you're thinking even in Kabul, where there's always a threat, force protection, for example, is a huge part of this operation. Uh, and But you can make differences in soldiers being able to teach other soldiers uh, operational techniques, but you then have to examine what is the quality of the people you're teaching. What is their instinct? Is their instinct is always to press forward? Is their instinct to put into operation things that you're teaching? Or is the, or is the instinct is to go back to the ways they used to do it 30, 40 years ago. And sometimes that's what it is at the moment. Now, fresh talks are taking place in Switzerland between the Greek and Turkish sides of Cyprus, aimed at finding a solution to the island's 43-year division. The UK has five military bases on the island and has offered to relinquish nearly half its sovereign territory if a deal can be done. Well, let's talk to our reporter, Simon Newton, who is in Cyprus. Hello, Simon. How likely are we to see an agreement emerge from these talks? Well, that's the big question. There's huge pressure on both uh, the Turkish and uh, Turkish Cypriot and Greek Cypriot presidents involved in these talks. It's not really the last chance saloon, but the the mood music, if you like, is that they're they're very close to that being the situation. All of this is going on behind closed doors. We haven't heard anything yet about what exactly they have agreed or are are arguing um, vehemently about uh, as such. Uh, This has obviously been going on now for 43 years and there is a sense really that patience is running out, particularly amongst the uh, the international community. Uh, And the new Secretary General, um, Antonio Guterres, we understand, is taking a much harder line with both sides over this. Uh, wants them to come to some sort of agreement uh, during this uh, these talks and particularly on Friday when he arrives in Switzerland that's from the Turkish sources we've uh, we've heard from or reportedly at least they say that's when they're going to make some significant progress and one interesting backdrop to this is the the role of UNFASIP the the UN mission in in Cyprus uh, the Australians have removed their police uh, officers from that uh, force in the past month or so and there is talk reports discussions going on about what will UNFASIP's role be if they don't come to some agreement and some talk the UN may well roll back its forces because it believes 43 years on they could be used more more efficiently, more effectively elsewhere in the world. Mm, And what are the major sticking points in these talks? Well, they are, as I say, taking part, taking place behind closed doors. There are two tables on which these technocrats are sitting, these negotiators. Table one, they're talking about the security guarantees, the big issue of the Turkish troops on the island. That is the biggest issue for the Greek side of, of the negotiations, uh, certainly. Uh, and on table two, they're talking about territories, property. How will the property re- be returned? What restitution will people get for the properties they lost back in 1974? That's for both sides, of course. And the big issue of government. Really, how will this potential federal state or entity function uh, if there is some sort of agreement on reunification? Mm. 
uh, we mentioned that uh, there's five military ba- UK military bases on the island, mm. and uh, the UK has offered to relinquish nearly half its sovereign territory. What do you know about that? Well, this isn't a new offer. This was made back in 2004, if you remember the Annan plan, which was the last big attempt to try and reunify the island. That was put to the to the Greek and Turkish sides back then. The uh, Turkish side overwhelmingly in favour, the Greek side overwhelmingly not in favour at that time. So that, that plan failed. But essentially, of the 98 square miles of territory, which the UN now has a sovereign territory here in, in Cyprus, as you say, we have five bases here. The UK is offering to relinquish about 46 square miles miles, which is about 46% or so uh, of that uh, total amount. Now, this isn't the bases themselves. Um, They're very keen to stress this is agricultural land, land that's been settled by Turkish and Greek Cypriots over some some years. This is parts of the the northern end of the Akrotiri Peninsula and some of the areas uh, around Decalia. But the bases themselves will stay. Um, And that is the position of the British at the moment. Essentially, the British position is that the UK bases are not part of the settlement because this is essentially British sovereign territory. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is still with us. Christopher, do you think Cyprus will be reunified? Uh, not in the way that people imagine at the moment. If you go back to Simon was talking about uh, Anan, that was Kofi Annan, who was the UN Secretary General. And he said, and his, in the loose language of the day, he said, basically, we've got a problem. The, the, the question is, Turks, go home. Turkish is saying we're not going anywhere. Why were we here in the first place? Because of the suspicion of Greece and what was going to happen to the island. There's also the international mood towards Turkey, which is quite ambivalent towards any any sort of settlement. And then when you get down to the basics, and there's a lot of movement between the north and south, but when you get down to the basics, things like housing, you know, whose house was it? How much am I going to be paid, uh, etc. These are things that could be sorted out. But the big question, like Turks, will you please go home? The answer is at the moment, no. And there's nothing on the table at the moment that suggests it might be otherwise. If there were to be some kind of deal, how would the withdrawal of the UN peacekeepers be handled, Christopher? Uh, that was very. That's very simple, actually. You can you can simply withdraw them, and you put maybe a local force. You can put anything you like in 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 place because there isn't at the moment a huge problem between the two the, the, the people of the island, and so that you the peacekeeping operation. It's not keeping any sort of peace because the peace works almost naturally, and then a civilian police force can do it. So that's not that's not that's not a big problem. I think the bigger problem are those ones we just talked about, and that is the, the bigger problem, and that is the complexity and the structure of, of Cyprus. Who owns Cyprus? Whose is it? Is it Greek? Is it part Turkish or whatever? And those, you can actually get to a settlement without resolving that sort of problem because, as Simon says, you've lived, li- lived with it for 43 years. Mm, Simon Newton, just before you go, um, mm. as you said, a lot of these talks are taking place, well, they are taking place behind closed doors in Switzerland. Mm. Uh, do you think we're going to have any kind of announcement anytime soon and when can we expect it? Well, I think, the, the, as I said, the, 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 the impl- indications are that Friday is the big day. Tomorrow is the, is the big day when Antonio Guterres arrives, that he will bang heads together, if you like, and try <laughs> and come out with some sort of, not maybe a concrete deal, but at least some sort of framework plan that they can move forward. Remember, this has been going on for a long time. A lot of meetings behind closed doors. And the key thing also to remember is that this has got to go to a referendum of the people once again, and that is where it could uh, either succeed or fail. All right, Simon Newton in Cyprus, thank you very much. Uh, now it's 20 years since Britain handed Hong Kong over to China. Still with us is Eric Grove. Your thoughts on this, Eric? 
Well, it's clear that the Chinese are trying to expand their power as much as possible. And and and, and uh, uh, this, in a sense, was was predictable. And there's very little we can do about it. Uh, and uh, I mean, despite all the good words that were said at, you know, when the uh, when the place was handed over, I, I don't like saying handed back to China was handed over to the People's Republic. We tried to make the best deal we could. We tried to hold the Chinese to it. But they basically hold all the cards. Christopher Lee, a strategic loss, but for whom? Well, in, in some ways, because it's for the Americans, not for the British. I mean, the British had sort of, although HMS Rook was still there, etc., uh, the, the British had sort of toned down even when the handover came. And because they knew the handover was coming, and also from 1968, uh, under Dennis Healy, uh, Britain militarily had withdrawn from, from, from the Far East. This was very much a good watering hole for the American fleet. And that's one of the things that they would rather like to have. Not this. I mean, uh, Xi Jinping, the, 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 the Chinese president, is there today. What's he doing? He is installing the new uh, chief executive, Kari Lam. Um, Hong Kong matters to the Chinese. It's still a great showcase. It is still a great business centre. And therefore, it's, it's all gone. 20 years on, let's forget it now. It's a good Chinese sort of Wall Street or, or the city of London, if you, if you like. But the Americans look at it and say, wish we had a place like that because they've got to go quite a way into the Philippines or they've got to go quite a way north into, into uh, Okinawa, etc. before they've got a system uh, or, or rather facilities they had there. Mm. Just before we finish this week, uh, Christopher, just to reflect a little bit on the hacking that's been going on and how much of a threat that is posing, because it is emerging as the new threat, isn't it? It is. Um, uh, Michael Chertoff, who was the Homeland Security uh, guy for, uh, uh, for, for Bush, he says this is the biggest problem, saying this this week, is the biggest problem to US security is hacking. You just think about it. Almost every week now, we hear that some big organisation has been okay. hacked into. Um, that's where we are, and it's going to get worse, according to Michael Chertoff. All right, and that is all we have time for today. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFPS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFPS SITREP. I'll be back same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.